We're back for another episode of La Pausa Pod. We have a special guest joining us in just a bit to discuss the Real Sociedad-Barcelona game from the weekend. But before we get into that, we will be discussing two teams playing quite similar to Barcelona, really. Jamie's here as ever, and we're going to be speaking about two of his favourite teams. Jamie, how are you and how excited are you to get to chat about Las Palmas and Girona today? Yeah, the equipos revelaciones, I think we can say for sure so far. Um, and yeah, Garcia Pimienta, I see a few parallels with, with Michel, with him. It feels like he's a, a few years back from, from what he might turn Las Palmas into or what where his coaching journey might go. But yeah, obviously we know from Michel, you need to have a lot of luck on your side and opportunities to to really find your place. So hopefully he gets out of Las Palmas. They give him a new contract recently. So yeah, t- two of Spanish football's better stories at the moment. Yeah, so we're going to get started with Osasuna versus Gerona. Gerona went to Al Sadar on Saturday and they won 4-2, having gone down 2-1, came back to win it by two in the end and a real battling performance from them. And now 12 games into the season, which is about 31% of the way through, they're sitting top of the league. And I want to revisit something we spoke about earlier in the season. Firstly, I said I was quite confident that they would still finish top four after the Real Madrid loss, and you weren't as confident. And I kind of said it in thinking it was going to continue as it was. Have you changed your mind? I I have, yeah. Um, I think you've got like an inside line to Michel from your previous meetings and interviews and you've had a better feel for this than I have, but obviously I want Girona to finish in the top four and as high as possible, but, and I love watching them play. Look, they deserve all the credit in the world, but I think I agree with you now because the gap to Real Sociedad is just too big. 12 points already. The fact that Real Sociedad are top of their Champions League group and are probably going to be in the knockout stages. I think to look to the league now, and know the the gap that they have to make up is, I, I just feel like it's too big, and I say that as well because I, I I don't believe any of the other teams outside of Real Madrid, Barca, and Atletico can push for the Champions League. I, I just I don't see the level in any of Athletic, Betis, uh, Valencia, those teams at the top. So yeah, I, I do think they're very much Champions League um, contenders now, or not contenders, but in in a you know, I'm on the favourites. Yeah, because Real Sociedad that obviously have the, the European football and even if they don't make it into the knockout stages, which is looking like they will, they're going to have European football. Atletico Madrid have European football and Girona... Uh, I've, I've seen comparisons between them and Leicester City this back when Leicester City won the Premier League and obviously we're not going to, we're not going to get that far ahead of ourselves just yet. But... They have been quite lucky with injuries and they don't have European football. Uh, do you, the, just based on that game we saw against Osasuna, a really, really difficult one for them to go to Al Sadar. And there was a point when they were 2 1 down, there was about an hour in, and the tackles were absolutely flying in. Mitchell said he was very proud of them after the performance because he was kind of worried about what, what Al Sadar was was going to bring. And I, I feel like Osasuna, watching the game, Osasuna kind of got 
a little bit it, it became a little bit too frantic from them and and Corona kept their cool brought on a couple of substitutes to change the game I felt and just overall a, a really calm and controlled win for them maybe, maybe sorry maybe not calm and controlled but they stuck to what they tried to do and they ended up coming out on top 4-2 and they've won 13 points from losing positions now yeah this season yeah yeah no I, I agree with I, I kind of do agree with calm and control because they turned the game that was frantic and just just full of back and forth, just, just packed with jewels. By the end, it was pretty calm and collected from Girona, and that's the most impressive thing. The way they were able to, you know, turn the tide at El Sadar when Osasuna were were up and and had a lead to bring the game back from that situation is uh, probably among the most impressive things they've done so far this season. And Michel actually said after the game that he, he was he was genuinely scared of going to El Sadar. I know that's a strange thing to say when you're leading La Liga, but he knew what type of test they'd have to overcome and it would be different to any other game they played this season. Um, it was a game for for duels, for for intensity, for matching Osasuna's just general thrust of play. And they did. And to bring, you know, if you look at the team as well that they played, you look across the back four and it's Arno Martinez, Eric Garcia, Daly Blind. None of those, you would say, are, are particularly good defenders. And they go to a place like El Sadar where you you will have to stand up to a physical threat at, at some point. They kind of did will at times, but they had the football within them to bring the game back around and, and win it in their style, which is the best signal for, for what they can do this season, I think we've seen. Yeah, going, going to Al Sadar and scoring four goals, which they've done now on, they've scored four goals or more on four occasions. They got three in another in, a, in another game. And the only time they've been held scoreless this season was against Real Madrid in that game that it's the only real blot on their copy this season. And a lot of people would have said they maybe deserve more from that game given the amount of chances that they, that they created. And... A couple of so a couple of performances that that stood out for us is just saying earlier about how they they do have a lot of physicality, but also the technique then to to when when a game does get a little bit out of control, it's not just all about winning jewels. And we'll start with the back line. So Daily Blind obviously arrived this summer. Some people questioned whether he was up to this level or not, and. Right, a few defensive lapses for the second goal. Budimir gets in front of him, which we've seen now on a couple of occasions. And but but at the same time, Budimir has made a career of this. Like it's not just Daily Blind that's been caught by uh, by, by by Ante Ante Budimir in, in an aerial battle. But a couple of defensive lapses. But his value on the ball is just so high that he he kind of epitomizes really what Michel and Caron are trying to do. What uh, watching this game. You can come away with it and say, you know, Blinders at fault for another goal. You could say the same in that Real Madrid game that they were beaten. Um, but I honestly think you'd be happy to give up, you know, sort of five, six goals from individual errors from Daily Blind this season to get what he gives you with the ball in, in return. Because I think that's it's a trade-off. Michel will be will be happy to take. Obviously, you don't want Blind to make defensive errors, but He's just that good on the ball. The way that he affects attacks and their attacking potential from the back by 
deciding well and executing well. You saw the first goal they scored in this game where they, they play out from basically at their corner flag and go the length of the pitch to score. And just those little passes and good decisions in the first phase of an attack to, to set the conditions are, are absolutely massive. And I, I can't remember the exact number, but just looking at the amount of uh, goal-ending sequences that he's been involved in this season, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's among the best in Europe for defenders. So he he's a he's a massive tool in possession for Girona. And it's it looks like an incredible signing, one that's going to pay off uh, big time. Yeah, and, and he... There was a couple of times during the game where he'd step out to cover the Asasuna attacker dropping deep and Alex Garcia would drop in. And that's almost like Michelle saying, look, it doesn't really matter who's there. Like Blind is like a midfielder playing as a centre-back. Alex Garcia probably not as defensively versed as as Blind is, but he's more athletic and it's, it's pretty much you're breaking even there. So it's I, I think there's an acceptance there that Blind isn't ever going to be a, a centre-back in the mould of someone like a Jules Koundé or someone. And I mean, obviously, he's in his 30s now, so it's never going to happen. But he, what he brings you on the ball is incredible. And then just moving into midfield, Yangel Herrera, just he won 16 duels in that game. And there was a couple he got on, the, a couple of frees he got on the end of and almost scored. Just, just, just a, uh, such a... A physical specimen going forward, attacking, attacking the box, and something that has helped to replace Romeo in the middle of the field with Alex Garcia stepping in playing defence midfield. But Yangel Herrera pretty much does it all there for midfield. Yeah, he's the all rounder in that midfield for sure. And Michel has spoken before about how in losing Romeo, they had to recoup some sort of physicality in midfield and. Obviously, they line up in a 4-4-2 out of possession and put Yangel alongside Alex Garcia. And that just about covers them for for intensity and, and they, their ability in duels. Obviously, you mentioned the stat about Yangel in this game. Uh, it was, in terms of duels and aerial duels, the only other player that had put up those type of numbers in a game this season was uh, Mikel Marino in the Bass Derby, which is obviously a... A super competitive game as well, so he's um, he's just been a real all round influence for them this season. Um, and I think he's grown in possession too. That was probably the the area where there was the biggest margin for improvement. Um, he does he doesn't really overcomplicate things, but obviously Girona are absolutely abundant with with technical players. So what he can give them in a physical sense and without the ball is. Uh, really sustaining performance for them as well uh, at the moment. And then Savio, who has been a, a revelation this season for that first goal, he and really shown all that, every little bit of technical ability that they have, being able to control it. Firstly, the, the, the off-ball movement, they're so technically good and they're so technically confident, confident in their technical ability that they're able to make those runs knowing that the player ahead of them is going to be able to control it under pressure and he's going to be able to lay it off. And Savio, just right through the middle of Osasuna, played in, I can't remember who it was he played in, but then the cross came in and goal. Uh, and just, he, he he's he's another player who, who was excellent, who we've got listed down here. Uh, Dobbick 
is he's been directly involved in 10 goals in 12 league games for Corona. A little bit of a slow start for him, but he looks perfect for them. And as I'm going down through this list here, one thing that jumps out is that they've no true superstar, but just the, the floor is so high for this team that it does have a kind of a little bit of a Leicester City feel to it. Yeah, it's, um, we, we've listed certain names as well to go through, but we really could go through one. One to eleven, or even you know, one to fourteen, with what players are doing off the bench as well. But um, yeah, Savio and Dovbik's role in that first goal should just you know send shivers down the spine of teams that they're competing with the season. Because away from home, we know they're uh, so comfortable on the ball at home. They've just created chance after chance after chance. In, in build up, oh, from build up situations, from just general circulation, and then away from home, if they can hit this hard with, with players like Savio and Dovbik on the counter, then you know it's, they're just so tough to stop. Um, and what I like about Dovbik as well is he's not a player who is put off by not seeing a lot of the ball. He's very much kind of a, a miniature Haaland in that he doesn't really touch the ball in, in general build-up play or, or circulation, but he's just happy to occupy the right spaces and, and to be where he needs to be and confident in the fact that the ball will arrive to him eventually because he knows Girona are attacking so well that they are going to create chances for him. For his goal, the header, he, he and that's just physically imposing player as well he just manhandled David Garcia kind of any other player is getting pushed pushed backwards by Garcia for that and Dobbik was just so strong and so that's Dobbik Jan Koto it's hard to believe he's only 21 just such a dynamic player quite diligent defensively going forward he's good and athletic enough to do both and switch from from defense to attack so quickly he's another player who who is stands out in this team it was and then just finally i wanted to mention victor chankov who we've been a big fan of such a tidy smart player in around the box and i think he was the one who actually changed the game here and turned it back in in Girona's favor he was playing further out on the right he stretched osasuna a little bit more and his just movement is so smart that he was involved in in the in the third goal obviously he actually scored it and yeah just just a, a really tidy player yeah <laughs> we can uh you get like you keep mentioning extra players and then i'm tacking on in my mind as well other ones to mention because we really could talk about everyone I but <laughs> yeah sigankov is Probably the player between his age and his talent, technical ability that Girona could probably sell for 40, 50 million quite comfortably, I think at this point. Obviously, they don't, they don't want to do that, but they might. If somebody, if a big fish comes for him, then that's that's something they have to consider. Um, yeah, he got, he got a bit lucky with his goal in this game, but what he adds at a technical level as the one kind of winger that they have that associates the most to offset what the likes of Savio and Kauto give you with just their general speed, 1v1 ability. He's he's the glue for, for the team in terms of traversing midfield uh, and attack. 
Um, and just thinking of other players to mention, I think we've got to mention Miguel Gutierrez as well. Probably mm-hmm. tactically, in terms of his role, the most interesting player for Girona, uh, for Girona this season. The way he's playing, he starts as a left-back, but he basically plays as a number eight, right up against the opposition's defensive line. And we saw Arno Martinez last season was the star of you know the defender who goes into midfield. But he's basically become more of a, a right-back slash centre-back now, whereas Gutierrez has become the left-back slash genuine central midfielder. And Arasate said after that, actually, it was Miguel Gutierrez, his positioning, that was the biggest headache for him because he didn't know whether he was going to play from from out to in or start inside and, and move to out. And they, they just had a real problem with with keeping uh, control of him with, with Jimmy Avila. And he said he had to switch Ruben Pena to that side to try and get a body closer to Miguel and, and to keep track of his positioning. So Miguel is a big symbol for for what makes uh, Girona so good at the moment in terms of their positional variety and, and taking up, constantly taking up different positions during a game. Absolutely, yeah. That's And he's another player who people probably don't even know that don't watch La Liga. Like, you probably heard of Angel Carrera, Daily Blind, obviously a big name, but like, these are guys that are just so technically good. And you mentioned there about, about selling players and I didn't really want to I don't even want to think about that yet, but this Girona <laughs> side probably is, or might get picked apart next summer. And Jan Coutos is a player who I was thinking about for Barcelona, because we're going to speak with Barcelona now in a bit with our guest, but but he's the kind of right back who can play in, in, in a variety of positions, but while remaining defensively quite good. So yeah, just a real, really good performance from Girona and they won in a slightly different way than we're used to a really combative game. And they had it was their fourth lowest possession total of the year after Las Palmas, Villarreal, and Sevilla. They only had fifty percent of the ball, but scored the four goals. And it was uh, in El Sadar, which is uh, is uh, is a proper cauldron. And they're they're the only the second side to do to 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 score four goals away in the Arasate era after Atletico did it in June two thousand and twenty. So. Really, uh, uh, hats off to Sharona there. and From open play, that one. Oh, yeah, from open play, yeah. Yeah, just to highlight how good they are from, from general play, not set pieces. We Hopefully, we'll be, speak- we'll be here in 12 games time, 12 weeks time, speaking about Sharona still at the top of the league or somewhere there, thereabouts. So we're going to move on now to speak about Las Palmas, who went and got themselves a win against Atletico Madrid. I was just looking at this, and it was actually their lowest expected goals total of the season. But they got the two goals, two really nice goals as well, and they, yeah, a, a real contrast in how contrast in how Atletico and Las Palmas set up. Garcia Pimienta, they, they got off to a really poor start this season, and it was three losses and two draws. But they've found a rhythm now, and they've won four of their last five games. They're just three points outside of the European places in La Liga. Jamie, is it is it time to start dreaming? About what? I don't know, but just <laughs> champion, I don't know, European football. No, I don't think so just yet. Somebody asked Garcia Pimienta this after the game, is, is it time to start setting new objectives? And he just said, no, stay up. But um, yeah, in terms of general play over these last few games specifically, 
you you can only be impressed by what they're doing. I I first felt watching them this season that something had changed in the first half of the Almeria match um, the the previous week. I, I know Almeria are currently bottom of the league, but the football they played in the first half there in a game that I'm not sure many people really watched, so they, they wouldn't really got a sense for it, but totally dominated. The, the positional play was, was outstanding. They just constantly shifted Almeria all around the pitch and and basically took them where they wanted. And that was the moment where I thought something's starting to shift here. Um, I know they had one game before that, but Garcia Pimienta's idea was still kind of crystallising. He was still finding the right players. And there are a couple of players that have come into the team recently that I think have affected the, the shift. And you're thinking of the likes of uh, Maximo Perone on loan from Manchester City, I think bringing him as, as the deepest midfielder and allowing Kyrian to play a little bit further forward has really maximised their their ceiling in possession. It just adds a lot of security on the ball in midfield and to get Kyrian a bit further forward as well because the, the pivote is not his natural position has had really good effects for them. And the other one, guy I want to mention is uh, Marvin Park because watching Las Palmas in the, the first kind of seven, eight weeks of the season, I felt they had a good play in place in terms of their build-up and controlling the match in the first two thirds, but they didn't have any change of tempo to, to really harm teams. You know, that's one thing we see from Girona. They can go from control build-up to, to hitting you you know, at speed with, with Savio and Cauto and all those guys. And Marvin Park has added that for, for Las Palmas, playing on the wing, a guy who you genuinely fear running beyond you. So now they can change tempo a little bit. They are a team to to really take into uh, consideration. Yeah, and, and on the Kirian Rodriguez stuff, so you've been speaking about him a lot, even during our pre-season previews and stuff. And, and actually just on Marvin Park, that he was a player who I had mentioned and had watched him with Las Palmas last year and and you weren't entirely convinced and I guess you you could kind of see it. It, it didn't really look like a, he was a natural right back, which is where he kind of played. Whereas now Garcia Pimienta has kind of made some adjustments. Alex Suarez started right back against Atletico and Marvin Park further ahead of him and he does look a lot more natural there. I, although having said that, that is where Atletico were putting pressure on Las Palmas at that right-back position, that ball over the top there to Rodrigo Riquelme, who's been really good. But on, on Kirian Rodriguez, you, you've been speaking about him a lot, and, um, yeah, he's you're, you're a huge fan of his. You're, and any of the Kirian Rodriguez posts on, on Twitter are from Jamie. <laughs> Um, but I was just I was just joking earlier. There's a there's a kind of a radical splinter group of Maximo Perone fans <laughs> coming out of the woodwork here, and they're, they're I don't know whether they whether they're going to remain uh, as a part uh, as two separate factions, or if they need to kind of unite under one umbrella group because the two of them together are just excellent. Maximo Perone, he's only twenty years of age on loan from Man City. And I'm just looking here at forward passes for players. He's obviously only played 318 minutes. So because he got off this kind of a slow start with Las Palmas, which also might speak to Las Palmas's slow start themselves. But now that he's kind of replaced Jonathan Vieira, Javi Munoz has come in and it definitely feels now like they've got complete control of, of, of lots of games. 
So in, in terms of his forward passes, 24.34, which is the exact same as Luka Modric. We're looking at players like Frankie de Jong in around that area. And yeah, his touches are, again, up around the very top among central midfielders in La Liga. He's right there with Luka Modric, Romeo, Tony Cruz, players like that. And... Yeah, he's just been excellent. He has more touch in the opposition box than than Kirion Rodriguez. He's younger, obviously, than Jonathan Vieira, who looks like he's on his way over the club. And yeah, just that whole center center of the field now looks a lot more under control now that Maximo Peroni has has solidified himself in that midfield. Yeah, that balance of the the three midfield looks as good as it has all season in these last two games with. Peroni playing deepest, um, Kirian slightly ahead of him, and then Javi Munoz is is the box to box guy who gives you the legs to nicely offset what Kirian and and Peroni give you along the lines of control and and security on the ball. So they've found the balance that that they were looking for all along. I think the the play has been there throughout, at least in the first two thirds of the pitch. Obviously, they've not created a lot in attack but again Garcia Pimienta is he can only set an attacking potential in line with the attacking options he's got and that's probably the weakest part of Las Palmas's squad the the front three Munia has uh scored recently and he he was pretty good in this game but he he'd been getting a lot of criticism of the fans for his um general contribution and the fact that Garcia Pimienta was not take him out of the team. He, he just persisted with him. Um, but among the best news was that Alberto Moleiro came back in recent games and he's looked bright. He's not somebody who, who is going to you know run beyond and, and stretch the opposition like Marvin Park is. He's more of a between-the-lines player who comes in off the left and, and adds value there. But what he does do is he plays at a really high tempo. He's not a player who you give the ball to between the lines and he kind of shimmies a bit and passes it backwards. He he plays on the half turn and accelerates towards goal and he's had a really nice impact so far. So Las Palmas have got pieces back and they've also settled on probably the best looking group they've you know, they've been able to put together so far. So they're a team to, to keep an eye on and we'll see how far up the table they can go. Yeah, I, I posted a tweet during last week about how they spent seventy three percent of their time drawing. They only, they've only, they haven't scored more than two goals this season, and they against Atletico Madrid. It was one of their fewest possession totals of the season. It was, it was actually they only had less possession against Villarreal and Real Sociedad, and then against Atletico they had fifty two percent possession, which is their season high is 73% against Rafa's Celta Vigo, which is another story entirely. But yeah, Las Palmas, what more can we say? They, they seem to have found their rhythm now and, and everything is looking good for Garcia Pimienta. Yeah, we should say as well that it was their possession player that caught the eye in this match, as it has done for, for a number of weeks. But the two goals in this match both came from winning the ball back high up in uh, the opposition third. So... They are the team that have generated the most shots after high turnovers in La Liga this season. So we can't 
um, just focus on the on the possession side if we want to give Garcia Pimienta his full due because what they did without the ball was was an absolutely massive factor in this game and I don't think Atletico really ever settled and were able to play around their pressure. Um, they went really man for man in midfield with uh, Kirian, Perone and Munoz matching up against the Paul, Coque and Barrios and Atletico looked pretty clueless in a way that was similar to Barcelona when they were put under significant pressure uh, this this past weekend. So it was nice to see a case of two of the, the big three teams in La Liga basically having no answers for, for for the pressure of a team who were the underdogs going into that game. And I know we will have to criticise in a way Atletico and Barcelona for not coming up with answers and not being able to play through, but deserves a lot of credit on the part of the, the opposition teams in there. And again, I, I think they were that good that we we can't just say that Barca and Atletico were, were sloppy and didn't um, find ways to play around them. I, I think the off-ball approaches from both teams were that good that they were always heading for, for trouble in those types of matches. Yeah, and speaking of Barcelona, let's jump over now to our special guest, Neil Gardner, where we'll discuss with him Real Sociedad and Barcelona. You're very welcome to the podcast, Neil. Neil is a Barcelona fan from Twitter, one of the more thoughtful football tweeters or Xers on the internet. And we asked him to jump on today to to speak about Barcelona versus Real Sociedad. Neil, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? I'm very good, mate. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Can't wait to get cracking because um I do have a lot to say about this game. I probably work saying it out loud. Yeah, yeah, nice one. We're, we're we're excited to hear it. So let's get straight into it. A lot of people said Barcelona deserved to win the Clasico, and they probably deserved to lose the Real Sociedad game. So let's assume that that's true. How mm. much of Barcelona being second best do you attribute to La Real's performance versus what Barcelona did themselves and how they set up? Well, I'd say it's probably a, a mixture of both. I think L'Oreal played so well. They came out aggressive. We know what they're going to do. They're going to press high at home. They have all the momentum going for them. But Barcelona's tactics, some of the way Xavi set Barcelona up seemed quite bizarre in certain ways because um, this was a little bit different from the Madrid game because even against Madrid, of course, you had their, the defenders, the three at the back, trying to play... Um, long balls, but there was still that build-up. The build-up was not completely non-existent as it was against Real Sociedad, you know. Um, I remember 10 minutes into the game, 15, 20, now it's half-time, and Barcelona barely tried to build up out in the back. And when you have players like Gundogan, you have players like Gavi, Fermin Lopez, and also Cancelo, who we will get to, um, it just doesn't make sense how you completely abandon your build-up and go long, and then of course you don't have the players to go long, so you just end up seeding possession over and over again, and that was probably one of the biggest um, factors as to why nothing just seemed to work all night. Yeah, the on on that, the was that because do you think that that was because Barcelona? Because Xavi didn't trust his the the physicality of his players, or was he afraid of La Real? Mm. Well, I don't. I don't quite know what what the root cause of what Javi was thinking is, but I know that this Barcelona side 
they struggle. I remember watching a game last season against Athletic Bilbao, and it was quite similar in the pattern that Barcelona just couldn't build up. So when they are under adversity against the coherent press, they can't sort of work their way out. And we've seen this over and over again, even against some lesser league sides in the Champions League or um, in La Liga especially. So I think it's um, sometimes the system sort of abandons the side without a natural single pivot. So Gundogan can't do that job. When Frankie de Jong comes in, he doesn't have that anchor and Oriol Romeo has also struggled. So we don't have a Bus- Busquets-like presence anymore who can sort of masterfully um, propel the side forward. And I think that probably is Barcelona's biggest downside at the moment, not having a proper ball progressor or a first phase specialist um, from the back. Yeah, you, you just mentioned the fact that they they were set up to play longer over the top um, and seemingly abandoned any thoughts of build-up pretty early on. Um, and just just from Chavi's, uh, or just thinking from Chavi's perspective, you know coming into a game at Real A Arena that Real Sociedad are going to press basically man for man and basically dare you to go long because Lenormand, Zubeldia are absolutely monsters at aerial duels and winning the ball. So to line up the game with basically Felix Lewandowski in the back line, so little speed to play over the top, so little threat to run beyond. Do you think that was a a, a mistake from Xavi not to perhaps go with Ferran or, or Rafinha or even Yamal to play in that last line? Because to not show any threats to run beyond will only encourage Real Sociedad to step on even higher. Well, yeah. Firstly, I, I think the way Xavi set Barcelona up was quite redundant in what they seemed to do because you set up with players who come forward and like the ball to their feet. So you'd assume you'd sort of amplify that build-up. But what they did was the complete opposite where they look to go long and they have no outlet. Lewandowski is just coming back from a long injury, a long time out. And, well, he hasn't, let's be honest, he just hasn't looked that good this season, especially when he's had to come deep and drop deep and play outside his box and hold up the ball. So in that case, it doesn't make sense that you try to go long. Um, But Barcelona did. And if they were going to try and go long, why don't you have Fran Torres or Rafinha? Because I think those are Barcelona's two best runners. And when Fran Torres came in, I think it took one minute and we saw a long ball over the top that he got on the end off. So um, I think Mm. it was a miscalculation on Javi's part. I don't know if these were the instructions that he he drilled on or or the players just sort of abandoned um, trying to build up. It was too difficult. I don't know. Um, but one thing I will point out is I was looking at the average positionings of, of Barcelona for the game against um, Real Sociedad and Lewandowski's average position was almost as a defensive midfielder. He was taking up positions deeper than, than Gavi. So Lewandowski was coming deep and, and it just wasn't working. You know, I, I don't know why Gavi um, didn't take up a deeper role and I don't know why Jao Cancelo was so high and wide where he hardly got on the ball when in fact one way to sort of amplify your build-up is to make sure that Jao Cancelo inverts into the midfield um, but Xavi kept him high and wide and made him operate as a out-and-out winger which again I, I don't quite understand as yet. Yeah, and on on that the 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 two Joes, let's start with Joe Cancelo. They they started so well at, at Barcelona, but but Joe Cancelo, 
he made 11 passes in 69 minutes on the pitch against Real Sociedad and you're saying about being high and wide but even at that he didn't fully commit to, to that kind of a role and he obviously Ronald Araujo, Araujo played right back in this game and in the Clasico and that's there the space he's occupying so they bought Joe Cancelo and this is the position that they needed him in to they're diluting his possession and his responsibility in possession. They're worried about him as a defender or is just just a consequence of the three centre-back system that they want to deploy? Yeah, well, this is interesting because when Xavi first got the three centre-back system and then you had Bowerday and Cancelo as well, so essentially five defenders, I, I assumed that this was to make sure that you sort of mitigate Jao Cancelo's defensive downsides and he gets more involved in the play. So I thought about that boxed midfield where you have Gavi and Gundogan staying back and then you have Cancelo inverting into the midfield with um, Fermin Lopez in this case. But what Javi went on to do was weirdly um, deploy Jao Cancelo in, in a role that doesn't see him um, get much of the ball. So even against Real Madrid where Barcelona had way more success and were actually able to break that press in and go forward, Cancelo only had 28 passes in the game and he was also um, a spectator for much of it. For me, if you're going to have this three-the-back system, the way to deploy Cancelo is to get him involved and make him your secondary creator where he works with your interiors inside, helps in the build-up. That's how he thrived under Pep Guardiola as well. Um and especially when you have the likes of Laminia Mile, Fran Torres, and now Rafinha on the right wing, I don't understand why Cancelo is being made to go forward. Maybe Xavi thinks, you know, his final ball is a bit more consistent than the likes of um, Laminia Mile, Fran, and even Rafinha, who, of course, was injured. So if you get him involved further forward, he might be able to um, play that instinctive pass that cuts opposition open. But when you see that the team is struggling to get the ball forward and he isn't being able to take part, he isn't getting in those positions to make those final balls, I just think it's necessary to make that tactical tweet that pulls him further back and gets him more involved in the game because he can make a greater impact from behind than he is right now making um, from further forward, which is pretty much negligible at the moment. It was, it was pretty bizarre to see Cancelo in, in such a diluted role because when he first joined, he was at the centre of absolutely everything and he was basically a a 90-touch-a-game player. Um, but I just wanted to add some context because uh, Xavi has spoken before the Shakhtar game and he was asked about Cancelo and he, he has said that um, he will recover his natural position. Uh, probably and it's going to be 8% of the time he's going to play at fullback. Uh, and the change was because he wanted to adjust defensively against Real Sociedad and Real Madrid, where he wanted, as he calls them, three correctors behind. So it seems like, yeah, Xavi was more focused on bringing back the three centre-backs and being strong defensively, which, of course, came at the expense of Cancelo being marginalised and uh, Barcelona's build-up suffered for that. So, yeah. The Cancelo experiment at right right wing back winger seems to be seems to be over already. Yeah, but I I actually thought that the three centre backs could have been an opportunity for Cancelo to operate more freely in that midfield. 
because you've got the three um, centre-backs and you can sort of form that boxed midfield with two midfielders further forward and two behind in the double pivot as Javi did last season. But that could have been done without moving Cancelo out wide because you could have easily played um, Ferran Torres on the right or Lamine Yamal. Then you have Lewandowski through the middle. And then Balade obviously takes up that position. So maybe he didn't want to drop Lewandowski or Felix. Um, but there was a way around it. And I think overall the team took, took a hit with um, Cancelo not, not seeing much of the ball. Yeah, I think this is, this is actually a personnel issue in that they don't have a Busquets and they don't trust Romeo there. So you, ha- you kind of have to have Gavi back Hitting back a little bit, and you you also want Gundogan there for his build up because they don't have because Gabby isn't as good in the build up, so you have to have those two players there if you're talking about the box. So that means Joe Cancelo. So say for example you switch out, you put push Cancelo in a little bit alongside Gundogan. Xavi just doesn't see that as being viable. You push Gundogan up, which is his preferred position. He doesn't see that good enough in build up, so you're kind of left with. You've got three players there. You're trying to fit into two roles that, and and none of them really fit. Whereas if you could put Frankie De Jong and Cancelo there, just for example, that that makes a little bit more sense. I feel like so. So I think I, let let's just get on to this now. In terms of the injuries, it's never going to be right. It feels like it, there's never going to be an ideal for Javi. He's never going to have his every player he wants available for whatever reason. Pedri, Frankie De Jong. All these, even Lewandowski, he walked off the pitch, uh, and I, I know he was poor, but he walked off the pitch when he was being subbed off, and I, and I looked, it looked like he wasn't comfortable. I thought he was limping on that ankle, but yeah, it's just never going to be perfect for him. So, what what do they need in 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 the middle of that, in the middle of the field, or do they go into the market in January for someone? Well, I don't think they they have an option. They just got to stick with what they've got because. They, they've they gone down the low-cost route. That was Oriol's amount, right? He came in to be that low-cost um, pivot who was going to add a bit of stability and balance to that midfield. But, well, I actually tweeted about this earlier, but it's surprising to see how soon and how fast Javi sort of abandoned the whole Oriol Romero idea. Because he came in, he had a few good games, it looked like he could function properly in that midfield, and then a few shaky games, a bad cameo later, he isn't even seeing a minute on the pitch. I don't understand why that's happened. Maybe it's to do with Frankie de Jong um, not being on the pitch. So Xavi might feel that Romeo is a better anchor for Frankie de Jong. But um, once de Jong comes back, it's going to be interesting to see what Xavi's best midfield is. I don't know what that is right now because we just haven't seen all his players fit. How does Frankie de Jong have the freedom to move forward. Do you play like a sort of pivot with De Jong and Gavi who can cover a lot of ground? Do Gundogan and Pedri operate further forward in their more natural roles like Javi did before the injury to all his midfielders? These are questions that need to be asked. In terms of in terms of the pivot, I know Barcelona have made it their priority to find a new long-term pivot. You know, they're like so, um, they're links to the likes of Gabriel Miscardo in, in Brazil. There's Florentino Luiz, who, who recently popped up at Benfica. And of course, there's, there's Martin Zumi-Bendi, who plays for Real Madrid and who's bossing the game against Barcelona a few nights ago. But the problem here is that they just don't have the finances to make things work at the moment. Um, and I'm not sure if that's going to be much better next season as well, especially if they don't deliver in the Champions League and 
probably don't win La Liga, that the prize money and, and the revenue just isn't going to be there. So, Joe Felix, he, he, he arrived like Joe Cancelo and he started to struggle again. And it just feels like, I mean, I've got loads of questions to ask you about this. So basically, he, he's in another environment where people are saying, making excuses, saying, oh, it's, it's they're the wrong tactics for him. I saw the tweet the other day saying, basically, this isn't the right environment for him. These aren't the right tactics. Atletico's tactics are right for him. But now he's jumped around to a couple of different environments, a couple of different tactics. He's had a load of different managers, which, okay, I get his unsettling, but at the same time, at what point does he just actually start to produce at the kind of level that he... He he we we he he should be producing at. Yeah. Well, Felix is one of those players, right? The environment never seems to be right. It goes back to Dembele. We've been talking about Dembele for eight years and we're like, Oh, he's almost there. He just needs to produce consistently, but it never happens. So as my time as a long, long football fan, I've realised that you just gotta take these players for what they are. Um I don't think Jao Felix is an eighty million pound or a hundred million pound player. He's just not um, I do like him. I think he contributes in certain ways, even for Barcelona. He's come in. It makes sense that he's in this side and he's operating in that inverted role with Balde overlapping. But at the end of the day, if you're an attacker for Barcelona, you need to have the output. And, and he just doesn't have the output. And he never has, really, at the highest level. Not at Atletico Madrid, not at Chelsea, and not at Barcelona. Um, he contributes in certain ways, and he's a good player, but... If he's perceived as a superstar and, and as a very big money signing that Barcelona may look to make next summer, at the moment, I just don't see him being worth it. Um, and I think there are other routes you go down for Felix. And I think especially prioritising a defensive midfield actually makes more sense than than um, trying to allocate whatever finances you have, which aren't much on, on a signing like Felix at the moment. Yeah, and, and, and you said there he's not an 80 million euro player whether he seems to think this or not, but he's he was bought for 126 million for Atletico, which probably skewed the whole our our whole discussion about him. That that just kind of made him appear like something to us that he actually isn't. But at the same time, if he wants to stay relevant and 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 remain playing at the top level, he's going to have to sacrifice a little bit of his game. He's he's he's, he's basically doesn't really do much defensively. And mm. and 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 I, I it just comes back to the issue with Frankie de Jong. I do think that Frankie de Jong makes him better because he's going to be dribbling drawing players towards him, which will free up Joe Felix and and Frankie Leon can find that final pass too. And and I, I just think, yeah, the, the the team is so reliant on Frankie Leon coming back and being healthy and getting Pedri back and that mm. that I guess we we should suspend judgment yet on, on, on Joe Felix's time at Barcelona. Yeah. One, one last thing I'd say on Felix is that um the environment seems to have to be perfect for him to deliver. You know, he's getting plenty of the ball. He's operating in those spaces. Balde is overlapping effectively over the other flank. But sometimes it just doesn't happen, right? Things aren't going to go your way. It's going to be imperfect. And, and you'd expect that the most expensive players or the best players, they rise to the occasion and they take the game by the scruff of their necks. But with Felix, when that happens and the environment isn't perfect, he seems to disappear. So he's great when things are going well and the team's moving forward, it's all fluid. But when that's not happening, instead of rising to the occasion, his influence seems to dwindle and, and he kind of disappears. We've seen this over and over again at Barcelona and, um, and Atletico Madrid as well. So I think that's a problem um, if 
any team is to spend the big bucks on him. Yeah, um, I just wanted to mention as well, I'm going to be the Chavi Quartz guy today, but there was, he made a big thing after the, after the Real Sociedad game about um, the fact that Barcelona need to get back to being a team who press from the front and recover the ball quicker uh, after they lose it. Um, and he was really incessant on that after the game and before the Shakhtar game. And he was also asked about Taki Kubo, what he thought about his performance. And it struck me that he said uh, Taki was spectacular with and without the ball. And if you're just thinking from Joao Felix's perspective mm. and the fact that he's going to have to convince Barcelona to pay a pretty big amount of money to bring him in permanently uh, next summer, money that they probably don't have. And the fact that he's a player who... He only really contributes on one side of the ball. Um, and you see a guy like Taki Kubo at the weekend play mm. play so well and, and be such a weapon without the ball as well. It just makes me think Felix says, as re- maybe we're, um, you know, we're fighting a losing battle. We're trying to change Felix's attitude and his behavior on the pitch, but he really needs to show a bit more out possession in these moments where the ball's probably not falling for him in attack. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, I just... I think Felix just needs to show more urgency in general for you know in the coming weeks and months. Yep, no, I agree. Um, and one last thing with Javi is he talks about you know demanding the press on and off the ball, working hard. But then if you look at his attack, it consists of a twenty-five-year-old Robert Lewandowski <laughs> and Jao Felix. So you you just don't have the personnel to play that way, do you? And, and you've got the likes of Ferran Torres, um, who doesn't seem to get a game over Lewandowski and Rafinha as well who he's sometimes benched for um, Lamine Yamal. So, yeah, if Xavi is as committed to the press as he as he says, I don't think Robert Lewandowski and Jao Felix can or should be indispensable starters in, in his system, at least. The, uh, just on Barcelona's press, and in fairness, they did commit to it against Real Sociedad and they did force them long, but then you've got the issue with Gavi was coming up against Mikel Marino, and Mikel Marino is about four foot taller than him and he just was like swatting Gabby away and Gabby is I like I mean I love Gabby I think he's he's excellent but that matchup just didn't work and while Gabby was excellent on Bellingham that was a very specific role where it felt like Gabby was asked to do a little bit more against Real Sociedad and I I felt like Mikel Marino really handled him well and Mikel Marino looked like the kind of player who who, who, who could really fit into a Barcelona side here in, in terms of what he can do, in terms of physicality, in terms of his work rate off the ball. And I know, I know Barcelona don't want to go start adding interiors to a team that's already pretty pretty uh, flush with them. But but yeah, I thought Mikel Marino and Gavi was a little bit of a mismatch physically in the air. And Barcelona were left four on four with Gundogan, Balde, Cancelo chasing behind the ball, chasing it. And... Real Sociedad, if they had a striker, someone like an Artem Dobbik or someone like that, we we could be talking about serious title contenders here. Yeah, no, I think, look, Barcelona, I don't want to be too cynical off the back of one performance because, you know, there were injuries, players weren't sharp, a lot of players coming in, lots of moving parts. And even in the Classico, a lot of people took that as a moral victory, of course, that Gundogan went on to completely debunk after, um, was because of the fact that there are so many players that are missing. And 
And if you look at Javi's tenure overall, we've had positive moments. You know, we won the league last season. Um, and not a lot of people expected Barcelona to do that, especially with Real Madrid being the, the UCL champions and, and all of that. But um, now I think that's sort of changing because you have a very good side. You know, you've added a lot of good players. The back line finally looks good. Um, the midfield, you've got so much quality and depth. You've got four or five great interiors. And then um, you've got Victor Roque, who's coming in in January, hopefully as well. So um, there are, of course, the the main part that this side is missing is a proper DM to sort of anchor Frankie de Jong and make this midfield complete. But I do believe that the expectations this season have to be very demanding and, and quite um, cynical of every move Xavi makes because this, make no mistake, is a side that is, um, on paper at least, good enough to compete with any side in the world, maybe by the likes of Manchester City, I'd say. Yeah, I think we should... Um, it, it's always a temptation when we talk about Barcelona to focus entirely on Barcelona, but Real Sociedad's yeah, off-ball approach, for me, I think they're the best off-ball team in Spain at the moment, and even with Barcelona kind of abandoning the build-up in this game, Real Sociedad turned the ball, um, according to Opta's definition of high turnovers, 20 times in this game. And that was the most, or the joint most on record that Opta have for, for a team against Barcelona. So I think we can say, along with Barcelona's issues, that Real Sociedad are just incredibly good at what they do. And one guy I just wanted to mention from their perspective as well, who, who is obviously linked with Barcelona, is is Martin Zubimendi. And speaking from a, a Barca perspective and knowing what they lack at that position, I just wanted to ask you, what's what's the part of his game that you're able to appreciate the most uh, from that perspective? Well, it's it's really simple, honestly. It's just how accomplished he is in the first phase of build-up. I mean, if you're talking about modern-day DMs, it can kind of do a little bit of everything. You know, He picks up the ball, he's got the ball progression, he can drive forward, but he's also got the ability to sort of play as an LCM further forward. That sort of versatility in today's game, I'd say, is pretty invaluable. And when you look at Barcelona themselves as a Barcelona fan, we just don't have a guy like that who can stay positionally disciplined, who can be compact, who can offer you a presence on the ball, of course, with his build-up, but also off the ball, which I'd say Barcelona need more at the moment. You need a balance of on and off the ball, because you've already got the expensive players, right? You've got Frankie de Jong, you've got your Pedris, Gundawans and um, Gavis, but you need a Martin Zubimendi, who, who's just a phenomenal um, player defensively and offensively. But what strikes me the most about him, of course, is just how effortlessly he progresses the ball. Um, I remember yesterday in the game last week, um, he got a ball coming forward right to him from the goalkeeper, Barcelona try and press. And he just casually flicks it sideways and, and plays like almost a pin-perfect pass and, and just evades the press. And I was like, wow. Like, that was like a speechless moment for me because he does that so often and so well. And that's just, we miss that. Barcelona haven't had that since Sergio Busquets. And now, um, with Oriol Romero and no actual first face specialist, we're, we're missing that big time. So, Zubi Mendy is an easy reference point for me. He he definitely has that Sergio Busquets quality in that 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 Vicente del Bosque quote about you watch the game and you miss Busquets, you watch Busquets and you see the whole game because Zubi Mendy he, he you actually have to go looking for him and you're like oh there he is there he is again he's everywhere but when you're not actually watching him it's more he he's not the kind of player who automatically draws your attention but 
leaving it late now, we're, we're into extra time here on the podcast, just like Ronald Araujo was when he headed that lovely, <laughs> lo- lovely, fin- lovely run, lovely ball by Gundogan, lovely finish. And he was the man at the moment, really. You, you can you can include him as part of Barca's problem in managing the ball effectively, bringing it out. But a sheer force of play, he, he moved. He went into like a Sergio Ramos centre-forward role late on. Just he was like, I'm going to get a goal here. And he, he, he got on the end of a couple and he ended up finishing that one. So, and you said you don't want to be too cynical after one loss. And I mean, they did win this game here too. Let's not, let's not forget that. But <laughs> of, of the performances that can be salvaged for Xavi's side, who do you think deserves credit along with Araujo. Yeah, well, um, of course, Araujo, we know how good he is. I don't need to talk about that. But I'd say a very, very big positive for Barcelona fans was just the sight of Pedri coming back onto the pitch. Now, I know he came on, he lost the ball one or two times. He took um, a little bit of time to, to get into it. But once he did, you saw the different element Pedri brings to the side. You know, he's switching the play. He's operating in between those lines, safe and secure. And then he goes and creates in the 90th minute the best chance of the game that, again, Javi, uh, Gavi should have put away. And Barcelona would have won that game even before the last minute um, Araujo goal. So having Pedri back to this side changes the entire dynamic of the midfield. You know, he can stay deeper back and sort of as your auxiliary first phase specialist alongside Frankie de Jong or Gundogan who, or whoever Xavi plays in that deeper role. But I'd have him further forward. He is the difference maker. He changes the dynamic of this midfield. And I think when Barcelona saw Pedri coming on, you know, he almost acts as that leader of the midfield. You know, you just raise your game and you're like, okay, now we have the players to make a difference. Let's try and push forward. And yeah, that's what we saw in the last few minutes of the game. That's when Barcelona showed by far their most attacking intent over the course of 90 minutes. And, and that was synonymous with Pedri coming back on and um, playing the role that he did. So I am very happy that Pedri's back, but we've just got to keep him fit and be very patient with his, um, with his game time over the next few weeks. Yeah, I think most football fans... Even even a lot of Real Madrid fans would be thankful to see Pedri back on the field. He's just got that just that slow, calm style, and just yeah, he's a joy to watch. But yeah, some great insight there, Neil. Thanks a lot, and we we hope you enjoyed, and we'd love to we'd love for you to come back on later on in the season. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'd love to come on. Great time, and yeah, anytime. Just let me know, and and we'll, we'll arrange it again. Yeah, so so we'll we'll link Neil's Twitter on on our on our Twitter, and we'll we'll re- we'll retweet some of his stuff there. So as I said, one of the most thoughtful football Twitter Twitterers or whatever you want to call it nowadays. But from myself, Jamie, and Neil, on this episode of La Posa Pod, it's adios. <laughs>